Let's open the Word of God to 2 Timothy 4. Let me read 2 Timothy 4, 1-4. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. I solemnly charge you, Paul saying to Pastor Timothy at Ephesus Bible Fellowship, uh, you probably didn't know that, but uh, that was the name of the church. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, the Father, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, proclaim the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside the myth. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This morning we want to talk about what TBFers should know about the King James only debate and to begin and to warm up our capacity for abstract thought we're going to show a short video that kind of surveys the issue. What is the KJV only movement? Is the King James Version the only Bible we should use? We're going to answer those questions. Many people have strong and serious objections to the translation methods and textual basis for the new translations and therefore take a strong stance in favor of the King James Version. Others are equally convinced that newer translations are an improvement over the King James Version in their textual basis and translation methodology. The KJV-only movement claims its loyalty to be to the Textus Receptus, a Greek New Testament manuscript compilation completed in the 1500s. To varying degrees, KJV-only advocates argue that God guided Erasmus, the compiler of the Textus Receptus, to come up with a Greek text that is perfectly identical to what was originally written by the biblical authors. However, upon further examination, it can be seen that KJV-only advocates are not loyal to the Textus Receptus, but rather only to the KJV itself. The New Testament of the New King James Version is based on the Textus Receptus, just as the KJV is. Yet, KJV-only advocates label the New King James Version just as heretical as they do the NIV, NAS, etc. Beyond the New King James Version, other attempts have been made to make minimal updates to the King James, only modernizing the archaic language while using the exact same Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. These attempts are rejected nearly as strongly as the New King James and other newer Bible translations. This proves that KJV-only advocates are loyal to the King James James Version itself, not to the Textus Receptus. KJV-only advocates have no desire or plan to update the KJV in any way. The King James Version certainly contains English that is outdated, archaic, and sometimes confusing to modern English speakers and readers. It would be fairly simple to publish an updated King James Version with the archaic words and phrases updated into modern 21st century English. However, any attempt to edit the KJV in any way results in accusations from KJV-only advocates of heresy and perversion of the Word of God. When the Bible is translated for the first time into a new language today, it is translated into the language that the culture speaks and writes today, not the way they spoke and wrote 400 years ago. The same should be true in English. The Bible was written in the common, ordinary language of the people at that time. Bible translations today should be the same. That is why Bible translations must be updated and revised as languages develop and change. The KJV-only movement is very English-focused in its thinking. So why should people who read English be forced to read the Bible in outdated, archaic English, while people of all other languages can read the Bible in modern, current forms of their languages? Our loyalties are to the original manuscripts of the Old and New Testaments written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Only the original languages are the Word of God as He inspired it. A translation is only an attempt to take the meaning of the original languages and communicate in a way that we can understand in English. 
However, none of the modern translations are perfect. Every one contains verses that are at least somewhat mistranslated. By comparing and contrasting several different translations, it is often easier to get a good grasp on what the verse is saying than by only using one translation. Our loyalty should not be to any one translation, but to the inspired, inerrant Word of God that is communicated by the Holy Spirit through the translations. That answers the question, what is the KJV movement? Is the King James Version the only Bible we should use? Research these questions further on our website, gotquestions.org. Just so you'll know, I love the King James Version. I grew up with the King James Version. Uh, I went to elementary school in Miami, Florida. I went to middle school in Birmingham, Alabama. I went to high school and met my wife in Needleton, Texas. Everybody in the Good Southern Baptist churches I attended in Florida, Alabama, and Texas used the King James. 90% of the verses that I've memorized in my lifetime were memorized in the King James. And I love the King James. I love the thundering diction of the King James. The, the quality, the tone of the language is beautiful. It's fantastic. However, while the King James version of the Bible, well, no doubt, go down in history as the most important English translation of the Bible of all time, at this time, March 2019, and really for many decades, I respectfully disagree with the premise. It's still the best English Bible for all Christians today, much less that it's the only Bible that all Christians should use today. So we're going to think about this. This is a big issue because folks that have had a zeal for the word and uh, a certain skewed bit of data hold to the King James only as the only legitimate English Bible vilify everybody else in the in the body of Christ. Uh, they see you either as ignorant and passively uh, heretical or somebody like me that's looked at the data is actively malicious and certainly not regenerate. So this is, is a big issue for some people and I would like to, with respect for their conviction, but with some light, a lot, lot, lot of light, a little less heat on the issue. Talk about why, why we can love the King James. If you want to use the King James, it's fine by me. But I'm not convinced it's the best translation for all Christians today, nor that it's the only translation Christians should use today. Okay? So let's pray we'll be teachable to God's truth and be more aware of what's going on with that issue, even as we pray for those who protect and serve us, our military peace officers, firefighters. And Eric, lead us in opening prayer, would you please? Thank you. Let me tell you what I'm not talking about today and what I am talking about today. I'm not talking about Christians who in good conscience hold the conviction that the King James Version of the Bible is the best translation for them. I, I think that's a very legitimate position to hold. And these people may even think it's the best translation for everybody, but they respect Christians who differ and use the ESV or the NIV or the New American Standard Bible, something like that. I'm not talking about those kind of folks. I'm talking about folks that insist the King James Version of the Bible is the only legitimate translation in existence and that all other translations are errant and spiritually toxic. That's who we're reacting to. Now, I'm not going to get into the weeds on this, but we need to appreciate the process God has used to give us his word. God has spoken in his word. He hasn't stuttered, but he's done a lot of work to get you your translation, whether it's the King James Version or some other translation. you got inspiration, preservation, translation, interpretation, and application. Inspiration is a class A miracle of God. God the Holy Spirit superintended the authors of Scripture, meaning David, Robbie, when he writes about half of the 150 Psalms, so the part of your Bible. David, Solomon, when he writes Ecclesiastes, God the Holy Spirit superintended them such that they composed and recorded without any error the exact message God wanted in timeless scripture in the words of the original. That's a big miracle. That only happened 66 times. Then God has preserved his word providentially 
by giving us at this point, we've got just less than 6,000 ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Nothing in ancient history has anything like that many. And with a little bit of hard work, you can figure out, based on all of those witnesses, the wording of the original text. Translation, unless you know Greek and Hebrew, and a little bit of Aramaic for Ezra, Parsa, Ezra, and Daniel, you're going to need somebody to take, uh, Jason, you're going to need somebody who knows Hebrew to tell you what Genesis is saying in English. And that's called translation. And that's true all across the world. As we try to fulfill, participate in the Great Commission, if you're uh, in Poland or if you're in uh, Jordan, you're going to need an Arabic translation of the Bible because they're not going to learn Greek or Hebrew or English just so they can read their Bible. So translation involves scholars rendering the original languages of the Old Testament, New Testament manuscripts, into modern languages using one of two approaches. Uh, one approach, this is my preference, is word-for-word -word translation. The King James is a word-for-word. -word. New American Standard is a word-for-word -word translation. Another approach is thought-for-thought. NIV is an example of that. Now watch this. In 250 B.C., in the aftermath of the Babylonian captivity, so many Jews were better at Greek than Hebrew in 250 B.C. that they wanted a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. The New Testament writers quite often, when they quote the Old Testament in the New Testament, cite the Septuagint. They don't always cite the Hebrew text. They cite a translation. And the Septuagint, in some books of the Old Testament, uses word for word. And in others, they use dynamic equivalence or thought by thought. The Lord Jesus, at times, quotes the Septuagint, the Greek translation, 250 B.C., of the Hebrew originals. So the apostles and the Lord used translations that were either or direct or dynamic. And then the most important stage is for uh, Andrew or Murray or Wolfgang or Jenny to ask two things when they read Scripture. What does this text mean in its context? It's only one contextually correct interpretation. And then you go, Natalie, what does that meaning mean to me and my conduct? I really mean what does that meaning mean to you and your conduct, okay? Or actually, I can just do that for me and my choices, okay? That's the process. We're talking about translation here in this King James only. And they're saying there's only one legitimate English translation. It's the King James Version. Now, let me uh, look and see and summarize maybe the arguments that are used for this position. Before I do that, I just kind of stumbled onto a little section in a book by Warren Wiersbe, that the book's called God Isn't in a Hurry. And this week I just kind of, without looking for this, I kind of stumbled onto it. And in a section in that book, God Isn't in a Hurry by Wearsby, he's got a little subsection titled, Some Say the King James Version is the Only Translation. And I think this is a good place to start before we look at some details. Let me just read this short statement from that book. When Wearsby said, I once was criticized by a student who disapproved of some of the books I have written because in them I quoted from different translations. And this person comes up to Wearsby and says, the King James Version is the only Bible. It's the only authorized word of God. Now you've got to respect the guy's concern and sincerity, but that just isn't true. When he had calmed down, that's always important, calm down, have a glass of milk or something, you know, I asked him to answer three questions for me. Number one, what was the word of God before 1611 when the King James Version was published? Number two, uh, what is the word of God on the mission fields where people cannot read English? And number three, who authorized the King James Version to be the word of God? Uh, of course, he saw the plight he was in. If some person or group, group authorized a translation to be the only acceptable word of God, then that person or group would have a thought, higher authority than the Bible itself. And it is inconceivable that the great saints and martyrs of the Christian church from the beginning of the church in 33 AD, day of Pentecost, Acts 2, through to 1611 when the King James, the first edition, was finished, 
that they didn't have the word of God before that. We had to wait for 1,600 years. It's even more inconceivable that our missionaries who dedicate their lives to the translation and distribution of the Bible are wasting their time on publications that are not the word of God. My students, my student friend's prejudices were showing, but when I confronted him with truth, he refused to budge. I can only pray that God will open his eyes. Uh, there's a organization called the Gospel Co- uh, Coalition, which is a good group, and on their website, they say they define the King James-only controversy like this. The King James-only controversy is essentially a conspiracy theory that claims that all modern translations, all of them, are based on flawed manuscripts and that their translators were driven by either a liberal or a new age, one world government agenda. Now, I've got my flaws, folks. But I am not in favor of new age theology or governance. And I'm slightly to the right of Attila the Hun in my theology and my politics, just so you'll know. Okay. Now, here are some of the major arguments used by these sincere folks that the King James Version is the only legitimate Bible. Number one, this is a big one. The King James New Testament is based on the majority Greek text, and actually it's called the Byzantine family of Greek text, whereas the modern versions use the corrupt Alexandrian Greek text. Uh, what's all that about? Well, let me, this oversimplifies it, but I think it communicates. You got the original manuscripts that are directly inspired. And th- these things were called, manu- the copies are called manuscripts because men copied them. After 1455, we don't have manuscripts. What do we have? We have printed copies, right? Gutenberg, once you turn that, every single copy is exactly the same. But you got men copying these texts. And you've got, you know, people in Jerusalem and Antioch and Alexandria copying, and then they make five copies of that, five copies of that. So as you go through time from the writing of the originals until 1455, and when you have a printing press, you're going to get more and more copies, right? And the uh, folks that translated the uh, King James in 1611 used the, major- the the text of Greek, which is derived from the majority of the extant, the available copies, whereas the more modern versions essentially use a, a group of texts that are much earlier than that. Now, when you compare what the Greek text of the majority manuscripts say, with the Greek text of the earliest copies, they're 98.7% the same anyway. We're not talking about uh, the majority text say, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works that any man should boast. But the earlier ones say, by your good works you're saved, by your own merit, and by rituals, and by sub- submitting to what the preacher tells you to, and by going to prayer meeting, you can be saved maybe for good enough. You don't have those kind of issues at all. But uh, most folks, for the last couple hundred years who've looked at this data, are saying the closer you are to the originals, when there are discrepancies, like does it say the grace of the Lord Jesus at the end of 2 Corinthians, or does it say the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the kind of difference you kind of see in most of these discrepancies. Now, you know what? From the standpoint of meaning, where's the grace coming from? Either way, from Jesus. The question is, does it have Lord Jesus Christ or just Lord Jesus? That's the kind of discrepancies we're talking about in all cases. No major doctrines affected by this. Theories floating around that uh, that were uh, doing the modern translations specifically picked an errant earlier text from North Africa, Alexandria, Egypt, and uh, were trying to mess up the Bible, that kind of thing. Okay, um, go back there. Another argument would be the modern translations attack the deity of Christ by removing references to his lordship. Now, that's serious business, man. I believe in the Lordship of Christ. That's the guiding light of the whole Christian life, abiding in Christ so you can submit to his Lordship, not just on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, but on Monday morning and even on prom nights. Have you ever heard me say that? Say, yes, Pastor Brad, many times. And I came up with that all by myself. Um, The 
Byzantine, the majority text type, the majority of the uh, text that the King James Version used, do have occasionally an extra Lord or an extra Christ attached to Christ, to Jesus, like I've illustrated earlier, whereas the older versions quite often do not. Uh, but is it more likely that somebody accidentally added one out of reverence or, or maybe because they just a slip of the tongue or slip of the pen because they always say, Lord Jesus Christ, they put that as opposed to somebody taking it out. And even if they did take it out intentionally, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that going to cause anybody to reject the deity of Christ, the Lordship of Christ, because you don't have Christ, you got Lord Jesus, but not Lord Jesus Christ? That's the, that's the essence of this at many levels. And beyond that, here's what they won't tell you. There are several places where the earliest manuscripts that the modern translations use are more emphatic about the deity of Christ in certain passages. Let me show you a couple. The King James of Jude 1.4 says, For there are certain men, crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. I can't spell that, but I can't say it. And denying... The only Lord God, comma, and our Lord Jesus Christ. The King James folks are translating their manuscripts as if referring to God the Father, the Lord God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at what the earlier manuscripts say. And this is a, a different translation, a more recent translation, the one I like, New American Standard. Same verse. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation that he was talking about in context, and godly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That is a, more, a much stronger affirmation of the deed of Christ than referring to God the Father and Jesus Christ, if you see what I mean. First Peter 3.15, one of my favorite verses. King James says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. New American Standard says, based on earlier manuscripts that I think are more accurate on this, sanctify Christ, not the Lord God, that's pretty generic. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. They're arguing that these, David, they're arguing these newer translations are taking away from the Lordship of Christ. In a verse like this, they're just being honest with the data they've got. This is very clear, Connor. It's not saying sanctify the Lord God. I'm, I'm for sanctifying the Lord God. But what Peter said was sanctify Christ as Lord. That's a strong affirmation, right? Lord means deity. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses. We've talked about them. Or modern Judaism. We talked last week who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now watch this, John 14, 14. In the Upper Room Discourse, the King James is looking at a Greek text that says, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Now that's pretty strong. Jesus says, ask in my name, you know, in prayer, and you, you'll get God's will worked out in your life. Look what the earlier manuscripts say. If you ask me, that's even stronger. They're both strong. But if you ask anything, but explicitly, the closer to the original, the original, if you ask me anything, I will do it. Number three, another argument used to uh, validate their claim the King James is the only valid uh, translation is this. Some of the people who were on the modern translation committees for the more recent versions, later became heretics or fell into sexual sin. Well, what do you do with that one? That's called ad hominem attack. Don't deal with the data, deal with the person. And there are a couple of high-profile examples of that. Just like there are bad cops, bad teachers, bad coaches. I don't think the problem with education is the teachers, even though there are a few bad teachers out there. I don't think the problem with Bible translations is the fact that somebody who knew Greek and Hebrew later traded his 40-year-old wife for two 20-year-old girlfriends. Now I've got to say, traded his 66-year-old wife for two 33-year-old girlfriends just to make it relevant, you know. Uh, 
including Bambi, the aerobic instructor, and people like that. Uh, forget about translators, people. Let's think about the authors, the inspired authors. Have you heard of David? What did David ever do? Did he contribute to the Bible? Big time. 75 out of 150 Psalms is in Christ's Bible. He ever fall into immorality? Ever murder anybody? Yeah, but I mean, that's okay, right? Uh, Solomon. Solomon wrote Song of Solomon. They were going to call it Song of, Song of Mickey, but they said, no, your name's Solomon. Call it Song of Solomon. Okay? Song of Psalms. Uh, he also wrote Ecclesiastes, right? Solomon ever do anything weird? Well, he had 700 wives and 300 porcupines. I mean, so, uh, 300 concubines. So he did all kinds of stuff in his spare time. Uh, if you catch my drift, Peter, he wrote First and Second Peter. Any skeletons in his closet? You know, and we didn't assign some guy who later became a heretic to, to do Romans. They, they, they used committees. They used groups of people to make sure anybody's individual bias or hang-ups won't be a, affect the modern translations. So don't, don't listen to that argument. Uh, modern translations, a fourth argument for the King James only. Sometimes delete verses from the Bible. Well, sometimes based on the older manuscripts, the more reliable, generally speaking, manuscripts, the modern translation simply sought to reflect what was contained in the original. I mean, it's just as serious to add things to Scripture than to take away. The most famous example of this is found in 1 John 5, 7, and 8. And in both the uh, King James and the New King James Version, the NKGB. By the way, Andrew, King James only people, they're pretty sure everybody who uses the new King James is just as messed up as I am. Okay? They don't like it even like that. But they'll say, well, you know what? Uh, the newer translations have taken away the biblical proof of the Trinity. Really? Well, because, yeah. Because King James says in verse 7, 1 John 5, there are three bear witness record in heaven, the Father, the Word, in the beginning was the Word Christ, and the Holy Ghost. King James, Hagios Numa is better rendered in modern English, Holy Spirit. But you got that very explicit reference to the Trinity. I love that. I would love for that to be true. But the earliest, that doesn't show up until like the 14th century. Suddenly that reading appears in the latter part of the majority manuscript family. Somebody put that in there probably as a note at the bottom of the page for one generation. Then a generation later, somebody's copying that Greek manuscript. Said, oops, they wrote that down and put an arrow. I bet they just forgot to put that in there. I think it was probably an innocent addition because the modern translations do this. There are three that testify the spirit, the water, and the blood. What are you going to do with that? Interesting. This is a note from the King James Version Study Bible. And it says, one slide. This is the King James only, this is the King James study Bible, not the King James only study Bible. Uh, Greek manuscripts are unanimous in showing that verse 7 should end with record or testify. Uh, likewise, verse 8 should read spirit, water, and the word, the three are in agreement. Uh, the text, TR, Textus Receptus, is the majority text, Byzantine text, uh, made its way into the, in, into the text type late in the game. In fact, Erasmus, who was the guy that organized the first uh, written Greek text, edited Greek text, didn't find it in any of his. And then somebody said, well, the Vulgate, the Latin translation, has that explicit reference to Trinity. Let's put that in. He said, no, unless, you, unless we find at least one Greek manuscript with it in, I won't, won't put it in. And then in between his second and third edition, somebody came with a brand new manuscript of First John nobody had seen before, and the ink was still wet. And he said, okay, I'm going to put that in there now because I've got one Greek manuscript, but I'm going to put a uh, disclaimer in it. I've never seen it before. I don't believe it. Forget about that verse. Do we need, and I love that statement. I'd love it to be true. You know, if I'm just picking what I want, I'd love to have that in the scripture. Do we need that verse to prove the Trinity? Do we lose the Trinity if that's not in there? Oh, well, maybe. It looks like you're not... I didn't shoot your dog this morning, did I? Okay, you're looking very convicted. Heck no. How do we know the Trinity? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
at the baptism of Jesus. You see all three members of the Trinity? Holy Spirit descends, voice of God the Father, God the Son. You know, it's all over the place when you look at it. You don't need that. It'd be nice to have that, but it's not there. So why die on that hill? You don't need to. Um, number five, another argument for this position. The original 1611 King James is the word of God over and out. But here's the kicker. Essentially, nobody uses the 1611 version because it's in really old English and you can barely make it out. I mean, it's difficult to try to figure out what it's saying. Almost everybody who holds King James only actually uses a later revision, the 1769 revision, which includes thousands of differences in spelling consistent with English in 1769, right? And then number six, and this is an interesting one. I'm not sure how they possibly uh, prove this. The modern translations all promote a works salvation. Uh, salvation is not something you do for God. It's something God has done for you. It's based completely on the work of Christ for you. It's received through God's gracious working by faith alone in Christ alone. And that's clear in all the modern translations I've looked at. But watch this. This is a really interesting. The, the top uh, reference there is King James Version rendering of Revelation 22.14. Uh, the bottom is example, uh, would be an example of more modern translations. Uh, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in and through the gates of the city. Whereas the actual Greek text says, Blessed are those who wash their robes. How do you wash your robes? Washing the blood by trusting Jesus Christ alone. And it's, it's interesting that even John R. Rice, who has gone to heaven many years ago now, but he was one of the uh, early strong American proponents of King James only. Even he admitted in his magazine, Sword of the Lord, that the King James Version renders that verse incorrectly. So it's the perfect translation except for that one, which seems to push uh, Lord, uh, salvation by works, although again, I think you can get around that. Those commandments allows you to have brownie points in the future that you wouldn't have otherwise. They weren't teaching salvation by works from that. Okay. Uh, and the idea that the modern translations watered down salvation by grace through faith, I don't buy that. There's the authorized King James 1611 version updated. Here's several modern versions. This is one of my favorite verses. I use it all the time. But to the one that worketh not, but believeth on him that justify the ungodly, his, that is the ungodly person who believes, faith is counted for righteousness. That's what the King James says. New York Standard says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him and justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Plus, we capitalize the pronoun for Jesus there, which I personally prefer. King James doesn't do that. Notice it doesn't say, King James, the one who doesn't work, but believes, goes to heaven, uh, and then the modern versions say, you gotta work and be a good Mormon or a good Christian or a good Baptist or a good, uh, Job's Witness. It doesn't say that. One who doesn't work but believes is reckoned as righteousness. English Standard Version, to the one who does not work but believes in Him, uh, boom, who trusts, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Holman Christian Standard, another popular modern version, but to the one who does not work but believes on Him but declares the ungodly to be righteous. It's a, Legal declaration, justification by faith. We were singing about what he says, we are, we are. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Watch this, Murray. Jesus in John 6.40 says, uh, this is the will of my Father. This is going to happen. That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have everlasting life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. None of the modern translations mess that up. They render it just in more updated English, and occasionally they'll put, they'll include things or delete a word or phrase or something that's not in the earliest manuscripts. That's what's happening there. Um, this is not a salvation issue, although really excitable King James only types will doubt my salvation because I know enough to know better. But last time I checked, the Bible says we've got bad news and good news. The bad news is all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You believe that, Phyllis? <laughs> uh, some of us have a lot to, to you know, um, look at in my life, but I, I, I still leak some oil. Um, 
I, I, I uh, thought I had ruined the transmission in my car, and I almost did when I realized I had my emergency brake on. But everything's fine. Everything's fine. That's not really a sin. It's just being stupid, you know. But um, all of sin comes from the glory of God. And I like to say, not only do we break God's standards, at our worst, we break our own standards. You ever broken your own standards? Uh, if you're saying no, I'm going to start following you around, just so you'll know. Okay? All of sin comes from the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. But the free gift, the Romans passage 623 uses the word free gift, is everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay? Uh, what must I do to be saved? It's what the Philippian jailer asked Paul. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But to the one who does not work, but who believes in Christ, who justifies the ungodly, because he died for our sins and rose again, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, because the law isn't a ladder you can use to climb to God. What is it? It's a mirror that shows you desperately need a Savior. That Savior is Jesus Christ. We trust in Jesus Christ. God gives us eternal life. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe. If you've not trusted Jesus Christ, you can do that right where you sit. It's not signing a card. It's not walking an aisle. It's not joining a church. It's trusting in Jesus Christ alone. The modern translations do a good job of that. Now, if I've bored you up to this point, if I've lost you, give me one more chance. Because we're going to go from defense to offense. And to me, this is the big one. If none of this other stuff was relevant, one reason I would say you have the freedom to use more modern translations is because the king, the, the English language has changed significantly since 1769, which is the version almost all the King James only people use, whether they know it or not. And let me give you some examples, okay? These are words found in the King James that don't mean what you think they mean, okay? Anon. That's not even a word we use anymore, is it? When's the last time you used the word anon? I thought maybe anonymous, you know. Somebody gave the gift anon, you know, anonymously. You know what anon means? It means at once or immediately. Look at that. It's fun. Uh, Mark 1.30. But Simon's wife's mother. Now, hey, Murray, don't tell anybody, but if Peter was the first pope, he was married. He had a mother-in-law. Oh, my goodness. But Simon's wife's mother, which says Simon's mother-in-law, lay sick of a fever, and the King James says, and anon, they tell Jesus of her. That means immediately. It's, anon means immediately. That's not even a word we use anymore. So you bump into that. And some of these people say, hey, all you need is an English dictionary from 1611. You can figure it out. It's hard enough to get people to read the Bible as it is, much less to carry a 400-year Bible under their arm. Attendance. I've been teaching at Cameron University for 15 and a half years now, and all I can say is if you're smart enough to be an adjunct professor at Cameron University, you ought to be smart enough not to do it for what they pay you. <laughs> but it's, it's ministry, isn't it? Some of those people are. <laughs> so anyway, as a college professor, when I see attendance, I know what that means. That means whether or not people are showing up for class, right? Well... That's not what I meant. In uh, 1769, uh, 1 Timothy 4.3, Till I come, Paul says to Pastor Timothy, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. You know what attendance meant in the King James? It meant to pay attention, not showing up for a class. Okay? Boom. What does the word careful mean out there? Watch out for something. Uh, it's a little bit slick this morning. It was foggy this morning when I drove in. You gotta be careful. Pay attention. You know, uh, but didn't mean that in King James. It means to be anxious or fretting. Uh, be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Be careful. So that means don't put your seatbelt on. Don't be careful. Hey, next time that tractor gets stuck, don't be careful and make sure, you know, you've got to back up in case it runs over you. No, it meant uh, to be anxious. Don't be fretting as if God's irrelevant, right? Charity is one of my favorite ones. When, what do you think of when you think of charity? Salvation Army, United Way, St. Jude's, 
I don't know who runs St. Jude's, but that is an amazing place. It's, and uh, it's funny because they had such great commercials. If you watch the Golf Channel a lot, I mean, every other, you, you see like three minutes of golf, two minutes of commercials, three minutes of golf, two commercials, one minute of golf, five commercials, and about every other one, because I guess they think old male golfers have got a lot of disposable income, is either the St. Jude's commercial with these adorable kids, and praise God for that organization, a Shriners Hospital. It's obviously the same company or better one did the commercials for those because those kids are so adorable. It's like, I don't know where that is, but I'll get a machete and I'll find those kids and give them some money. I mean, that's, you get so motivated about that. But, you know, in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, so faith, hope, and charity abide, but the greatest of these is charity. Like, the Salvation Army is more important than faith or hope? Uh-uh. What did the word charity mean in 1611 and in 1769? It meant agape love. Not erotic love, not phileo, but seeking another person's highest good. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what charity meant, right? Conversation. You know what that means. That's uh, verbal dialogue, right? So 1 Peter 1.15 in King James says, Let your conversation be holy. So that means no more cussing there, Savannah, when you're talking to Andrew. You can't, that would not be holy conversation, would it? Is that what it means? The word conversation in Old English meant whole manner of life or lifestyle. Today it just means specifically verbal dialogue. So you're going to miss something there unless you have a 400-year dictionary because you're going to think, well, that's just talking about the way, that's referring to something about how I talk to people. Don't be nasty, mean, crude, and, and stuff. But it really means your whole lifestyle, which would include your verbal dialogues. What does it mean to faint? Hey, hey uh, Danny, didn't your brother faint the other day? And he was dehydrated, right? Is he okay? Yeah, great. So Danny knows what fainting means, right? Well, in the King James, let's see. Uh, I love this. Where uh, Jesus in Luke 18 says, uh, he spake a parable unto them to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now, faint means to lose consciousness, right? That's not what the word meant in Old English. It meant to be discouraged. Today, it'd be doubt, pout, and drop out. That's the way I put it, right? Now, this is a good one. Filthy lucre. I think you're guilty of filthy lucre. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, filthy. That's got to be some sexual thing, right? Filthy. Oh my gosh, lucre. Oh, I'm not sure what that is. Maybe I should find out. You know, um, I don't want to know. Filthy lucre refers to money gained by wicked or illegal means. For an elder must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given a wine, no striker, nor given to filthy lucre. Okay, that's what that means. Is that going to communicate very well to modern English speakers? Of course not. This is the reason you need new translations for every now and then, because language has changed. The, the recipient language, the, the, the end point of the language. I mean, you can translate an Arabic Bible today, and 50 years from now, you're going to have to translate it again, because the language changes. Uh, peculiar, I love this. You know what peculiar means, right? I can look in the mirror. I, I've got very peculiar hair there, Okay. It'd be a lot easier for me to shave it, but my head is not round, Jason. It, it, it looks like it's squared off. It's got mumps in it. I got hit by baseballs here and here. Got a slight scar there. Had skin cancer removed there. I would scare small children much worse than I do already. If I would just shave it all, it'd be a lot easier. But the less you got, the more time you got to play with it all day long. It's ridiculous. So I, I understand peculiar. Peculiar means odd or weird, right? Well, not really. First Peter 2.9 in the King James says to believers, you are, a, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. There's a story told about a um, young country preacher who after his first six months in the, uh, in the ministry said, after being a pastor for six months, I know that the word of God is true when it says Christians are a peculiar people because these people are weird. That's not what it means in that context. It means that which is owned and or special. God owns us by the blood of Christ. That's what that means. Not that we're weird. Now, there are some weird Christians. And everybody seems normal till you get to know them, Sydney. Just so you'll know. Okay? What does the word suffer? That's peculiar. What does suffer mean? Suffer the little children and forbid them not, Jesus said. Uh, Jesus loved little kids. 
I love little kids. I guess I'm like Jesus in that way. Uh, not all little kids love me. I don't force myself on them. But I love little kids. Uh, and the disciples say, hey, he's too busy. Get the kids away from him. You know, he's got, he's busy. He's, he's God. You know, I mean, he's, you know, he's got stuff to do. And Jesus in the King James says, suffer little children and forbid them not. Suffer meant to permit or allow. That's what it meant. Is that the way, is that what you think of when you hear the word suffer in modern English? Of course not. And then without. Without actually meant outside. Okay? Paul says, hey, to the Corinthians, you've got some serious sin going on. You ought to be doing some church discipline. But my job is not to judge those who are without or outside the church. I'm talking about people claiming to be Christian in a local church doing all kinds of horrible things to each other. So the English language has changed big time. And if that's all you remember, uh, I think that's pretty good. 2A, 2B, the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts that the King James uses are just demonstrably not as accurate in those less than 2% of the cases where there are differences. Because you're just much closer with the more recent manuscripts. Like the difference between 950 AD, that would be the earliest majority text type, to uh, 250 for complete New Testament manuscript and, and fragments as early as 115 A.D. Uh, also, this is interesting, historical and archaeological discoveries since 1611 have allowed modern scholars to more accurately understand certain biblical expressions. In Acts 12, King Herod Agrippa kills James, the brother of John, the first apostle to die, wants to kill Peter, uh, is foiled in that, and then we're told later... He was eaten by worms and died in the King James. He said, what a terrible way to go. But I mean, worms are kind of, what, did he just lay there for like five days and worms just kind of, nobody helped him and what happened? Eaten by worms in 1611 is kind of like, it's raining cats and dogs. You ever heard that expression, Robbie? Well, if you told somebody English is a second language, it's raining cats and dogs at my house, they're going to think small mammals, but you don't mean that. And if you get that meaning, you're misunderstanding. Eaten by worms means a, a sudden painful death. That's what that means. Tetelestai, John 19.30, when Christ finishes the atonement, he says, it is finished, three words in English, tetelestai. We didn't know until the last couple hundred years, tetelestai meant Paid in full, mission accomplices, written on bills of sale for burrows and, and stock animals and, and, and for grain uh, that people would buy after you paid for him. He's paid in full. Not just it is finished, paid in full. Mission accomplished kind of thing. We know that now the King James translators didn't know that. This is really ironic. When the King James was first published, and I gave you a list of modern English translations, I'm not going to uh, bore you by reading that to you, but it kind of shows you there was Wycliffe's uh, first English Bible and then the other translations that lead to the King James. But when the King James was first published, it was resisted by many hyper-spiritual Christians because it was too easy to understand. It's too easy. It's got to be hard. It's not worth anything, right? In other words, it oversimplified many statements according to the pilgrims. The Puritans would have nothing to do with the King James. That was that newfangled, too easy to understand Bible that you can't trust. They preferred the Geneva Bible, right? Ironically, today, David uh, Stribling, or David Bearden, when you guys are lined up in parallel like that, I mean, it's hard to tell um, who I'm talking to. Um, today, many King James only say, well, the King James is hard to understand, but that's a good thing, because you got to really want to know what this means, Amber. So bring that 400-year-old dictionary with you so you can figure out what filthy lucre is. And it's probably not what you think it is. So just kind of thing. Uh, thank you. Uh, number four, uh, what Bible should non-English speakers do? do? What, <laughs> what Bible should non-English speakers read? That's what I meant. Uh, I don't know. I guess... You just translate the original 1611 into Swahili, and then here, have fun with that filthy lucre. What does that mean? Yep. Uh, eaten by worms. Oh, my goodness. Kind of thing. And then, you know, the conspiracy theory is anybody that uh, uses or is involved with the production of these modern translations are all hidden closet heretics. Uh, I know of, and I know some of these people personally, 
like uh, Dr. Leitner, Dr. Ryrie, and Daryl Bach at Dallas Seminary, and D.A. Carson, and you know Harold Honer, people like that. Uh, they believe the earlier tra- uh, copies were more accurate in that 2% area where there are some minor discrepancies. They worked off that, and they strongly affirmed uh, all the major doctrines of Christianity are not heretics. So as I close, I'm not talking about Christians who in good conscience uh, have the conviction or the personal preference that the King James is the best Bible for them. More power to you. That's great. I love the thundering diction of the King James. Uh, it's hard for me to hear Psalm 23 in any translation but the King James because I heard it so much as a little kid, and I love the way it just flows off the tongue. It's great. It's powerful. But to say that's the only legitimate translation is not good. Christians who insist it's the only legitimate translation, it's been directly superintended almost like the original manuscript of Romans or Ephesians was, and all those translations are errant and spiritually toxic, right? And again, this gets personal when some of these people uh, get online and imply that if you don't embrace the King James, you're probably not really saved. Uh, you are at best uh, blissfully ignorant and unaware of the issues because your pastor won't tell you, talk about this stuff in the pulpit. You'd never get into this topic in the pulpit. You know, we just did today. You notice that? Yeah, that's what we talked about. Um, or people like Harold Honer, Charles Ryrie, Robert Leitner, and James Mitchell and Brad McCoy are all malignantly, actively sinful, trying to hide the real meaning of the Bible to you because we don't use uh, an edition of the King James. So my bottom line, I hope yours is too, is while the King James Version no doubt will go into history as the most important English translation of the Bible at all t- of all times, at this time and for the last many decades, I would say, I respectfully disagree with the premise that it is still the best English Bible for everybody. might be for you, but I don't think it is for everybody, much less that it's the only Bible all Christians should use. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you uh, that in your saving grace, your purposes are never foiled, and you have spoken to us in your written word, and you've inspired it, and you have preserved the witnesses to it so we can have a dependable word. You don't stutter in your word. And I'm thankful that we live in a time when um, it doesn't take 10 years for a scribe to copy the Bible. We can print it. We can put it in a digital form. We have access to a plethora of really good modern translations, and we're going to put the King James on on that list too. But help us to, to realize that this very parochial idea that only one particular translation that's 400 years old that no longer really orients very well the modern English, which we all speak, and we really speak Amlish, American English, which is even further away, that that is some kind of idol, some kind of fixed form that must be the only way we receive your word. And help us to not just be able to argue or debate this issue, but help us to be excited and motivated to read your word, to understand your word, to embrace the values and the teachings of your word and live them out to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.